My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The Underground. The Decision. The Spoke. The Departure. The Single Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Mutation. The Isolation. The Deception. The Suspicion. The Unexpected. Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Beginning. Hello, everyone. Here we are with some Andalite Chronicles, part Andalite one. Chronicles. Why is it part one, Jenny? <laughs> uh, so the Andalite Chronicles, as I understand it, were released in three parts, maybe as like a special through the Scholastic Book Club. Is that right? That is totally right. Because I was talking about this a little bit in episode zero. I was I had this vague memory that this is how I got introduced to the Animorphs. And now I'm completely convinced that my first Animorphs experience was reading part one of the Andalite Chronicles <laughs> and being like, this is awesome. What's going to happen next? And then going back and reading the first 10 or so Animorphs books that were out at that and time. And still not finding out. Right. Well, it was like, you know, September, October, November of 1997 mm-hmm. when the Andalite Chronicles were released and then they were all collected into a single nice. volume. Each third is about the size of an Animorphs book, maybe a little bit shorter. A little shorter, yeah. Still a lot happens. So I'm super excited that Gray gets to experience these books with the same cliffhangers that I did when I was reading them <laughs> for the first time. I do. And the cliffhanger was bananas. So before we get into that, we're recording these a little bit out of order in our recording sequence. So Gray hasn't had a chance yet to predict the Andalite Chronicles. So what we had her do was write down what she thought was going to happen. And now, even though she's already read it, she's going to share with us her thoughts before reading it, what was going to happen. Also, any thoughts on the cover that you had? Oh, yeah. Yes. So I would like to start with the cover because the cover is very different from the other Animorphs books. There is Mm -hmm. no morphing on the cover. It is instead a very grumpy looking Andalite. (laughs) Uh, he is he's just serious he's he's very Lauren serious likes serious guys as we'll Lauren. get there <laughs> he is backlit by a yellow sun there's a spaceship everything on this cover is very phallic yeah <laughs> it's like alarmingly phallic and really those uh, trees <gasps> whoa and also the yeah, spaceship the spaceship it's all very bad also he basically has a halo he does the sun is forming just a halo saying. behind his head I did not do a close read of this cover, and the reason I know I didn't do a close read of the cover is it says right there, before the Animorphs, there was Elfangor. I did not see that. And so (laughs) my prediction for these was, I predict it's a history of the Andalites' battle with the Yerks and goes back like 50 years to the first Yerks arriving on Earth, which was incorrect because my, the first thing then that I read was the opening, you know, Elfangor says, this is my story, and... The first part of it is called Elfangor's Journey. It starts with, my name is Elfangor. I'm an Andalite <laughs> prince and I'm about to die. And so I, oh, no, it's about Elfangor. That actually makes a lot more sense. I'm still thinking of these books as a farther reaching series and not a middle grade sci-fi series. Of course, it's about Elfangor. That makes a lot of sense. And I feel like probably you told me that, but I had just completely forgotten. Mm-hmm. So, But it's also the, the history of the war is much shorter than you might have been yeah. led to expect. 20 years? 26 years. Right. And it's only been going on for five years. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. 20, this book is 21 years ago. The year core started five years before that. Which is yeah. something we talked about in an earlier episode, how many generations there had been yeah. between yeah. the different people who had started the war and What's-His-Face's Folly, Ciro's Ciro's right. Yeah, Ciro must still be around. Yeah. Lauren was around. It's it's a very Lauren. Comp- <laughs> it's going to be confusing. <laughs> it is going to be confusing. We'll just... Humans we'll just, called Lauren pronounce it the way that feels natural to each of us so we'll be fine 
Okay, I'll think of a good word. But yeah, it's a much more, it's like a compressed <laughs> Yeah, there's a Low <laughs> So let's see. A lot happened in this. Elfingor is an Andalite Aristh. He's a cadet on the spaceship. He and his fellow cadet get sent on this sort of boarding another spaceship mission. And they find that it's a spaceship that has kidnapped two humans from Earth. So they rescue these humans. Uh, there's a girl named Lauren and there's a guy named... Chapman, what a coincidence. I probably totally Gray's already reacting. I can't wait to get the full <laughs> reaction. So Elfingor, his fellow cadet, and this disgraced war prince named Alaran, we don't know why he's disgraced, but he's disgraced, are sent to take these humans back to Earth. But on the way there, they find out that these aliens, the Skritna, who had kidnapped the humans, had also dug up this ancient artifact that they clearly didn't know what it was, but the Andalites recognize it. It is the Time Matrix, which was buried beneath the pyramids. Gray is already rolling her eyes. This is going to be so good. That was my prediction, <laughs> was that Gray was going to roll her eyes as soon as Jenny said Time Matrix. <laughs> Ted wins. <laughs> Ten points to Hufflepuff. <laughs> Okay, so the Skritna took the time matrix. Alaron and Elfingor and Arbrin, who's the other cadet, are like, we have to get it back. So they haul butt across the galaxy. <laughs> and the Skritna took the time matrix to the Taxon homeworld, which is horrifying. So the Andalites board a Yurk spaceship, acquire Taxon morphs. There's a battle. Elfingor fights really well, but is really traumatized by it. There are a bunch of Yurks on the spaceship. There's some moral controversy. Do we eject them to space like Alaron wants to? Do we not, like Elfingor thinks is the right thing to do? They kind of put off the question, they land in the taxon homeworld, and they get separated and get caught because when you morph a taxon, the hunger is so overwhelming that another taxon falls to its death. Every taxon in the vicinity runs towards it, including the Andalites and Morph. Elfingor realizes at the last minute what he's doing, doesn't eat the fallen taxon, runs away, and that catches someone's eye, like a taxon would never do that. So this guy named Subvisor 7 shows up. He's a Hork-Bajir controller. It's like, aha, you, you're an Andalite and Morph, aren't you? You and sort of throws him to some other taxons. First, he actually tries to team up with him. He's like, if I were an Andalite controller, it would be really cool. <laughs> and Elmigor's like, nope. So he gets thrown to some other taxons, manages to morph out. And the very last thing that happens before the book ends is that they had left the humans in their spaceship and were like, oh, we've disabled the controls. You guys can't fly this. But that spaceship is now landing. Chapman comes out. He has Lauren tied up next to him. And he's like, I'm going to trade. I can trade you a whole planet full of that and points to Lauren. So that's the note on which we end this part. Like Ray was saying, it's a nice little cliffhanger there. Bananas. <laughs> Where do we even start? We could start with the smallness of the world since we've so... uh, already been rolling our eyes about that. <laughs> I have complained about this in the past and I recognize, again, this is a middle grade sci-fi series and my expectations may be too high. But are you kidding me, Chapman, is the <laughs> is the one that gets kidnapped by the aliens? He was supposedly an unwilling controller that only did it for his wife. Oh no, it turns out he masterminded the whole thing, I guess. We'll find out. Not well, I, I'm just gonna like quibble with the language a little bit. I'm not sure it's like a question of like height of expectations. I think it's a kind of expectation. Mm -hmm. Like that it just is fitting for this genre to like not have like 
50 million characters the way like a sprawling thousand word adult fantasy would have like, you're exactly right to be fair it's kind of unrealistic but <laughs> i mean but also it is a science fiction book in which they morph into animals the the smallest of the world is not the least realistic part of it <laughs> it's true but yeah so it's it's less of a quibble now because i think you're right and i have come around to that perspective mm-hmm. but i do still roll my eyes when when it was chapman i was like are you well, real i think you i think i texted ted and i was like i forgot chapman was in this gray is gonna flip <laughs> just are you kidding me so the thing that you were saying that i also feel is that like i kind of got this more nuanced understanding of his character at least from book two and like obviously mm-hmm. chapman can controller chapman is a huge thorn in the animorph side and now we're just finding out chapman is a cartoonishly evil caricature teenager. of everything that is wrong <laughs> about human teenagers and right he's... so much more of a typical teen than any of the actual animorphs i'm not even a typical teen but he's a typical space villain teen mm, yeah who's apparently about to sell his entire planet to the aliens for no apparent reason. Right. Yeah, he's like, I can make, I can get an advantage out of this situation. And that doesn't seem to have gone well for him as he's now an assistant principal <laughs> in Northern California. I mean, <laughs> this is a very bad right. thing. Do you think that is... wasn't his ambition? <laughs> I think he's like the most cartoonish villain short of Visser 3 that we've seen in the series so far, right? Mm -hmm. But there was something I basically remember reading once I made the connection between this and the other books. Basically, the idea that it was Chapman worked really well for me reading it for the first time because... I already hated him because the Animorphs, <laughs> yeah. he's like an obstacle to the Animorphs in the books. And so making that connection, it wasn't like, oh, this is so, this isn't that plausible or like, wow, he's not that nuanced of a character. I was like, uh, this guy's the worst. And everything he says confirms my view and I hate him so much. And now <laughs> I'm rooting against him and when he gets the upper hand over Lauren, I'm like, I got really into it. Um, Just a way to kind of reinforce the emotional stakes. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it was a, I think it was a useful shortcut for me at the time. <laughs> Just like, oh, well, I already hate him. Everything he does is really bad, but mm-hmm. I can now root against him. I hate him a lot. He's a terrible character. I mean, terrible human being, not just because of what he's doing in terms of the plot, but just his opinions and attitudes are awful. He is this whole thing yeah. where he goes off on non-vets, oh. which is horrifying and cruel and I, I was actually very taken aback by it. I know at one point Ted told me that there was an extended nom parallel and I didn't see it coming. It's just he is cartoonishly bad and I it did not affect me in that same way of kind of wanting to root against him because in book two, mm. which is the last time I feel he was really an obstacle for them, he mm-hmm. has very much fallen out of view in a lot of ways because they haven't had much to do yeah, with the He's school. shown up a little, but he's kind of been helpful actually in that like he has given them information inadvertently. Right. I mean, he hasn't really been the person against whom they're battling in the same way he was in books one and two. And part of my takeaway from that was that he's not a particularly nice person but he's also an inadvertent controller and Mm -hmm. he does want to protect his daughter and that's very valiant and I don't like him as a human being but at (laughs) least he's got some redeeming qualities and it turns out no incorrect he does not no redeeming qualities in this book whatsoever. So it was just an odd, it was odd for him to come back in this way for me. Right. And like, and maybe we're going to see him make that journey, but it's a pretty far way to come back from the Chapman yeah. we see in this first part of the book. 
And it is funny, like at one point Marco references like, man, if the Yerks weren't here, we could do some really cool stuff with these powers. But that's like it. They do not otherwise really try to take advantage of their powers. Like maybe to figure out like why their science experiment isn't working, but they aren't really out for like glory. Like the Animorphs are not morally perfect, but like their motives are really pure. Like they're really admirable. And this like throws it into like such strong relief. Though, I mean, Chapman isn't like 13, right? Presumably oh, he's yeah. like 16 or 17. Like he was a little so there's older. there's like a little bit. I would I don't know where are you getting that from? I don't know. Okay. I just that's... He's like a year older than Lauren maybe. Right. Lauren is probably 13 by conservation of, you know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Characters. I just I just feel like yeah. it, you know, for whatever reason, they read us just a little bit older. That might be true. I also thought that they were older and I do not know why I thought that, but I definitely read them as if not adults, at least much older teens. Funny, I I think I read I read them as like the Animorphs age ages, mm-hmm. just because I don't know it makes sense to me. I don't think this is what I was thinking at the time, but it makes sense to me that like if you're writing a book aimed at a certain age audience and you're writing the characters to be the correct age to be like a little bit older than your audience, if you have this other spin up book, you would probably have the characters be the same age. Yeah, I I just feel like it's very much like someone in ninth grade talking to an eighth grader being like, you're just a kid. Yeah. That's kind of, (laughs) but that puts them to me a little bit older than where the Animorphs are. And the Animorphs are, you know, maybe they're turning 14 soon. I don't know. Yeah, there's, doesn't seem to be real textual evidence for either of their ages. All right, call them 13 and 14. They are, I think that makes me like Chapman even less. Really? (laughs) I don't know why, but just something about him. It's like such far-reaching ambition for a 14-year-old. Yes, and it's, it's so, his approach to the world is so very cruel and unnuanced and selfish that I think I want to believe better of a younger person. Oh, that when they're you know you're 18 and 19, you're kind of out for yourself and you're figuring out your place in the world. And hey, what can I do to become the kind of adult that I want to be? Whether that's powerful or you know famous or whatever that is. But for a 14 year old to be having these strong thoughts and feelings about Vietnam vets, I just I like that a lot less. And I. Well, I mean, that's interesting. So they're presented as like these two, Chapman and Lauren are presented as like these two examples of humans, and they're very, very opposite in many ways. But you don't get any understanding of what their life is like on Earth, and it can be anything, right? So presumably Chapman's just quoting something that his dad or his uncle or somebody in his family says all the time. It's much less likely that he's come to this opinion from his own kind of yeah. horrible personality, yeah. which he definitely also has. No, but, but it's a really good point. Yeah. You get a little bit of a glimpse of Lauren's life and that like her mom is going to be really worried about her, but her dad is like suffering from PTSD from Vietnam. Right. But we don't really find out anything about Chapman's life, I don't think. And you don't know what their kind of day-to-day life is like. Mm-hmm. Like presumably it's similar to what, you know, the Animorphs would have been doing in, yeah. in the 70s, but there's not a lot of detail Fewer there. chat rooms. They did not do any research on the internet. <laughs> what about, so Chapman, familiar face. Yeah. What about some of the other familiar faces? Well, we find out that the Andalite who is leading them to the tax on Homeworld is, okay, what's his name? Alaron. I'm going with Alaron. I'm going to, I'm probably going to say Aloran. I'm so sorry for the confusion <laughs> this is going to cause. I, I can try Alaron. A- Alaron. Al-Loran. Um, <laughs> is that your particular That's what I've decided. Uh, so Aloran is the 
Andalite who becomes Visor 3. Yeah. Which we learned in the Alien. Mm-hmm. Hashtag the abomination. Yeah. Hashtag the abomination. So in this book. We better tag our podcast tweet. Hashtag the abomination. <laughs> so if anyone's like filtering out. Yeah. They don't want to be. They don't want to be faced with the reality of the Andalite controller. They won't be triggered by that. Good. Good point. Yeah. Good point. We should do that. Yeah. He, um, he hasn't been turned into a controller yet. As far as we know. As far as we know. Ooh. Although it seems likely that that's going to happen here. And although there is no textual evidence for this yet, Subvisor 7 seems like it's probably going to be the Yerk that infests him and becomes Visor 3. That is my prediction. This is such an unfounded statement. (laughs) Yeah, hold on. Give me a second to look up this passage because it is brilliant. Is Um, this the one about how he foresees their The veil of time is lifted? Yes. Hold on. So you say there's no textual evidence, but I would just like to present what meager textual evidence there is. Subversor 7 is trying to convince Elfangor to just demorph, become an Andalite, and become a willing Andalite controller. And he says, I could be a full Visser. And then Elfangor thinks, an Andalite controller? This Yerk scum wanted to take over an Andalite body? I felt a wave of revulsion. A wave of revulsion that seemed to grow out of some deep insight, as if I had caught a glimpse of the future. I wasn't a mystic. I was in the military. But still, I felt a weird, unsettling sensation. I looked at the subvisor. I looked into his greedy, murderous eyes, and it was as if I could see him clearly, as if the veil of time was lifted, and I knew then I would not die. Not yet, at least. I knew it deep in my heart, because I knew that in looking at this creature, this yerk, I was looking at my true, personal enemy. Nemesis! So I think that's going to be Visser 3, and I... This is wild speculation, but okay. But it seems... When I read this, I was like, this is pretty funny. In terms of his, like, utter faith that he's found his one true nemesis. Yeah. And it kind of reads as, like, a I found my one true love type Yeah, thing. nemesis soulmate. Yep. Yep. It's an un- their relationship ends in a really unfortunate way. One must die at the hand of the other, whatever it is. No, it's true. And it's uh, nice to see him in his previous is forms. It? Is it nice? Well, it's good to get that background, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and of course, our primary narrator here is Elfengor, mm-hmm. whom we have also met before. But now we get to see him 21 years ago as a kid. Yeah. Same age as Axe. And he is just like Axe in so many ways. Aww. He describes himself as a clumsy, slow-witted, and quite possibly hopeless fool. At one point, he runs full, full tilt into a prince, just like Axe does. Uh-huh. But he has a good reason. He does. Okay. He does. But they both run into a thing. They're both trying to understand human emotions. Mm-hmm. So Elfengor says, smiling is a thing humans do by turning the corners of their mouths, which struck me as a very axe statement. Yeah. And I liked how he was explicitly writing for both Andalite and human audiences. Yeah. And Sitting. at one point he, he says, like, oh, you were making a joke. You know, like, Arbron does humor sometimes. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah. yeah. I don't do humor so much, but I see that that was a sense of humor. <laughs> very uh, axe describing Marco as he has the unfortunate... Whatever. Afflicted. Affliction. Affliction. Yeah. He's afflicted with a sense of humor. The yeah. thing that really struck me is that every time we've seen Alfangor in the series so far, he's like much less of a imposing figure, right? When he mm. when he first crashes, he you're kind of like he's so like yeah, up. he's like this hero. He's like the embodiment of like freedom coming from the stars, and he's like, This is my final gift to you, humans, and then he <laughs> had dies this noble death. He's like, Oh, he's a prince, he must be like from some like family that's super important. And then you find out actually, you know, he's like a famous war hero and a hotshot like fighter pilot when Axe yeah. is hanging out with him on the dome ship. He broke and that's his like law. minutes before yeah. he 
minutes before everything blows up and he crashes, right? Mm-hmm. And then here, like you were saying, he's basically <laughs> just another dumb and like kid like Axe. Mm-hmm. I love seeing those different layers of like perceptions of his character. Yeah. There's an incredible amount of foreshadowing in this book, both for <laughs> the book itself and for the rest of the series. So Visser 3, uh, us meeting Visser 3 in, in an earlier form, I think is, is definitely one of them. But there's also some stuff about how uh, Elfengor is going to be this great warrior. We mm, see his mm-hmm. first battle. Yeah. Um, he has this thing where he's like, I'm pretty sure if I'm in a real battle, I'd do better. <laughs> right? And, and then, then it turns does. out he yeah. that's accurate. Yeah. Aloran and his his sadness and yep. PTSD possibly from seeing the Hork Bajir homeworld taken over. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was that was great. There's also the morphing for the first time and the way that those instincts take over, something that we see all the time mm-hmm. in the Animorphs books. Yeah. And then I would very much like to talk about some of the hints that we get in the opening chapter. Yeah, there's a book. there's a prologue. <laughs> And it's Elfengor talking about his why he's writing this book. Um, well, it's not a book; not it's a Heraclitus. Yes, his final statement. So, is it like they create like a thought speech link to their ship, and then like what comes out is this like crafted narrative? Apparently, apparently, it's, it's a it's little very bit handy. like it's like a pensive where yeah. you get to relive his memories in a very realistic way, rather than it being just him right. giving you bullet points it's, mm-hmm. you get to kind of live with him the narrative of his journey and that is what we're doing in this book i had a kind of dark thought about this which is what if this also explains the way the animorphs books are being narrated <gasps> right this whole framing device of like i can't tell you who i am but here's my like oh. most inner thoughts and, and things like that so this is like the moment where they're all the animorphs at some, or, like... or just the animorphs at some point are like we've gained this andalite technology but like we think we might not live to see tomorrow, so we mm. might as well tell the kids of Earth what is going on. Mm. He is dark. I thought you were going to say the dark thought that, like, maybe he's not telling it accurately. Ooh. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't think we have any evidence no, that Elfanger is that kind do. of person. No, but. but it is an interesting possibility. I do love unreliable narrators. Yeah, no, it doesn't really seem like he is one, but... All right, so what what do you want to talk about in the prologue? There's probably not much that Jenny and I can say, but I I'm sure that I'm there is. I'm going to mine as many predictions. Gray's amazing theory. Yeah. So uh, he is dying. He is on Earth. He's looking for the time matrix. So that weapon is still on Earth somewhere, which means that it has gotten back to Earth because the action of this book is it getting off Earth. So that's mm-hmm. presumably going to be the rest of this Andalite Chronicles. It seems, he says, it all seems inevitable now. Of course my death would come on Earth. Of course the child would be here. Of course it would be Visser Three who would take my life. And then the end of the prologue, he's describing that this is his heractalest, his, his memories to be recorded by the computer. This is not just a message to my own people. I hope that someday humans will read it as well. Because humans are also my people. Lauren and the boy I have just met, but not for the first time. So I paused there at the end of the prologue, and I thought to myself, because of course I did, Tobias? Did Elfengor bang a human? Is Tobias part Andalite? And then I said, these f***ing books, I can't believe I have to ask that question. (laughs) Okay, so then it's 21 years later, it's probably not Tobias. Probably. But I love this thing. But that was my prediction. This is amazing. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that. That's, that's, That's awesome. 
Um, it's probably not Tobias. But who is the child going to be? It seems likely to me, given what happens during the rest of this book, that Elfencourt totally bangs a human. Yeah, but which one? Is it Lauren or Chapman? I mean, good question. Given that it's... Or seven, yeah. or seven. Yeah. <laughs> He's Does, not a human. Yet. Yet. <laughs> Neither yeah. is Elfengore. Depending on how morphing abilities work with, you know, fertility, I would suggest it's probably Lauren. Oh, okay. he morphs <laughs> he into morph a womb-bearing yeah. person. Yes. And yeah. has, uh, has the child him or herself, depending on which pronouns uh, they prefer. Um, but I that would guess be amazing. he bangs Lauren, and there's a kid, and the kid is half half human and, and half Andalite. Was there other prologue stuff that you wanted to talk about, or should we talk about Wait, I want Lauren? I want to talk about this thing where if Alfangor is a human and he conceived a child, would that child be half Andalite? No, because the DNA changes. Yeah, yeah. so... But because like I gave some, some thought into okay. what a half-human, half-Andalite child would be like and how very <laughs> painful that would be uh, to give birth to and decided that for the benefit of my own imagination, the yeah. kid's all human just happens to yeah. that the dad was... So it's not, it's not a, uh, a Spock situation where he's like the first half-Vulcan, half-human, like they but had to do a We've talked a little bit about how there's maybe this like your mind is separate from your body thing in oh, this universe, yeah. right? So yeah. maybe maybe your like brain or soul could be half Andalite. But Interesting. The, the body is obviously all human. The DNA I'm gonna, is all human. I'm gonna paraphrase Alphangor and say, I'm not a mystic. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Actually, before we talk about Elfinger and Lauren specifically, can we just talk about Elfinger's experiences of humans? Because it's so great. The, I think the term is defamiliarization, where you take something that's like very, very familiar and you like make it seem weird and it's really awesome. Like, what are those like comics that are going around right now? The aliens, like Strange, Strange Planet, Planet is I that? think it's called. Yeah, yeah. but it, that's totally what this is. Yeah. And the whole chapter where the humans go on the dome for the first time <laughs> is glorious. Can I describe how Elfengor sees the humans for the first time? Yes. The bizarre creature stood just a bit shorter than me. And what was incredible was that it stood on just two legs. Just two! It had arms, but you could see that it didn't use them to walk. They wouldn't have been long enough. The creature's face was the same size as mine, but rounder. There were two small bluish eyes on the front of its face, and the lower third of the face was split open horizontally. Many species have such openings. They're called mouths. Today I learned. There's a bit about lips. A lip is a mouth part. (laughs) (laughs) The thing where they find out that humans have red blood... Oh, and they're horrified like, by Like, red it. blood? Red? Yuck. And Elfengor's all like, I was trying to be more mature than Arborin, but yeah, the red blood creeped me out, too. <laughs> what color is Andalite blood? Clear. Clear? Whoa. Okay. Uh, Lauren also surprises him by doing a thing she called sitting. <laughs> it's funny to see at first, but of course, very practical for a two-legged creature. Chapman started to explain how humans ate, but it was hard to picture, really. It involved spearing chunks of hot, dead animals and stuffing them in the mouth. But I refused to believe that was really how they ate. (laughs) I assumed Chapman was making things up. Fair enough. And the bit where they go to the dome, and it's like, feast feast yourselves upon this grass. (laughs) And they're like, what? (laughs) How do you eat? And they're like, well, you eat through your hooves. And they're like, no, we eat through our mouth. And they're like, what? You lean over and graze on... Graze on the ground by putting your mouth to the floor. And then the Andalites are so upset that they're taking off their shoes. They're like, stop ripping off your hooves. 
It's horrifying. But I want to know, are, are humans the only species that wears clothing? Like, this so seems far. like an, a so completely far, yeah. unfamiliar idea to Elfingor and Arbred that, like, oh, that's not skin, it's clothes. Like, I guess there must not be any other species in the known galaxy that wear clothing. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the case that Andalites are naked pretty much all the time. Yeah, which leads to many other questions about genitals that I haven't addressed yet. <laughs> yeah, I want them to have some sort of sash that they can, like, carry things in. Oh, yeah. They don't have Maybe one, they have bags that they carry or something. Where do they put their um, phasers? Yeah, it's true. When he, like, has the, the dragon view and he hands it to Lauren, like, where was it? Where did he get it from? Um, I really liked the line, a two-legged creature can twirl better than a normal person. And there's some good stuff about them being centaurs. Like, Mm -hmm. the arrests have very small living spaces. Oh, yeah. And he has to do this ritual for his (laughs) baby brother-to-be that involves him being close to the flower, which means he has to stick his hindquarters out into the hall, yeah. which is, like, super embarrassing. Everyone's rushing by, and he right. just has to stay there. like, the logistics of, like, horse people having tiny, like, spaceship cabins <laughs> is just hilarious for me to think about. And the like, reason, all the yeah. awkward backing in and out. The reason he and Arbrin get sent into this Skritna ship to rescue the humans is because it's a very small ship, and they're not quite fully grown, which leads to the question of why they're on the spaceship in the first place. But they can fit more easily. And you kind of get the idea that, like, Andalites probably aren't that maneuverable. Like, we could maybe crouch down, but they probably can't crouch all that well. They can't turn their heads. Right. Although at one point, they are sitting on their... They must be sitting on their haunches because the two cadets and Alarin are having the kind of war council before they decide what to do. Mm -hmm. And the two humans come over and squat next to them. Oh, okay. So I was imagining, you know, horses sometimes kind of sit on their hind quarters. And I was like, this is a very silly way to have a council (laughs) meeting. You all look ridiculous. And it also seems like they don't sit much. Like, probably the way horses, like, won't normally, you know, they sleep standing up, right? Sitting makes a lot more sense for species with two legs yeah it does seem like despite the differences there's this like immediate connection and actually even attraction between Alfingor and lauren yeah he's got a thing for human women <laughs> yeah like the, she hands him the the dragon beam and their hands brush and his eyes go to her golden hair for some reason right <laughs> like whoa i wondered if he was looking for her stock eyes Oh, possibly, it seem, but I, mean, I think I think it's an like implied attraction there. No, I, it's definitely yeah, implied yeah. attraction. But I just wondered if the reason oh. he looked at her hair was because he was expecting to. No, I think he just really likes her hair. Her hair is very pretty. Yeah, and she seems to feel the same way. She kisses him. Oh yeah, on the cheek. And yeah. she's <laughs> Where obviously else would she kiss him. <laughs> she's obviously flirting when she's like, "I'm into serious guys." Yep. Right. Yep. That's a strong signal that he does yeah. not pick up on. That that makes me think they might be a little bit older. Like that seems like pretty blatant for a 13 year old. At least I kind of hope they're a little older because yeah. that's it's all very uh, a little uncomfortable, especially if they're going to yeah. conceive and a child. I also feel like it's a little forced. Maybe this romance here. On the other hand, you know, they just happened to find these weird aliens super attractive. So it's kind of great for these two people that they found yeah. each other. It's like such a such a coincidence. A of, they have a lot of time to bond on that like journey through normal space to Earth. Like they talk about their lives and stuff. Yeah, they both. And it's awkward because everyone have, else is really close. They by. have dreams. That was a really nice. Humans thing. have emotions that might be fatal. <laughs> Maybe you'll get back. Maybe your mother won't have to die of missing you. It was an expression. Can I read the thing about dreams? Of course. 
Do humans dream? I asked her, surprised. I do, every night. So do I. But I guess we have very different dreams. Then Lauren smiled. It's a thing humans do by turning the corners of their mouths upward. Maybe, she said. Maybe not. It's very cute. So were you, were you rooting for these two kids by the end of first part? Uh, Tobias theory aside. <laughs> I, I, I was. I think they have... Uh, there's some things they're going to need to overcome for, for this too. Uh, I mean, she's tied up right now for one thing. For starters. Yeah, going to be sold to the Yerks. But he clearly has feelings for her that have lasted 21 years. Yeah. Because when he's dying, he's thinking about Lauren. That he's... Mm-hmm. Part of him is tied to humanity because of her. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm rooting for that to go better than it feels like it probably would. That also that reminds me of something. This is a bit of a tangent, but uh, we don't get a whole lot of Alaran here. He's, mm-hmm. he's, he's like a little bit mysterious, right? He was on the Hork-Bajir homeworld. What does that yeah, mean? He's disgraced and yeah. we don't know why. His views about the Andalites and the military and war are kind of like controversial and unsettling. It, we don't really get into that a lot, but we're introduced to him being like, here's the coolest spaceship you've ever seen. By the way, I named it after my wife. And yeah. all we know about Alarin from the brief bit that we get of him in book eight is that he's like, can you tell my wife and kid yeah. that I love them? It's such a compelling detail that after all of that time and all of the presumably bad stuff that's going to happen in these books and that have happened with Visser 3, that's the first thing that's on his mind. Mm-hmm. And Elfanger yeah. has that bit of connection to. He also has, seems to have PTSD, mm-hmm. either from mm-hmm. what happened on the Hork-Bajir homeworld or from some other battle. Where he recognizes... Yeah. So the whole thing is like, Lauren is like, when my dad came back from the war, and this is like, this is 1975, right? When this happens, that's a pro- or 1976. Lauren's like, my dad came back from the war, and he was kind of messed up. And Chapman's like, some guys just can't take it, which is a horrible thing to say. But Alaron is the one who's like, actually, this is, no, I totally get where you're coming from. So yeah. it's like, it's a war, that's a, a fact of war that transcends species. And he's very internal in that way. He's, he's kind of, he keeps to himself. He's very moody. He seems withdrawn. I read it as he also has PTSD. Yeah. Should we talk about some of the, like, opinions on war that happen in this? Like, there's a lot of war commentary. Let's get into it. Makes sense in the Animorphs. It's a book about war. We get Alaron saying, The electorate wants war without slaughter. They want a clean, neat, honorable war. Fools. And Elfinger and Arbron, like, the cadets, are really shocked that he would say that, that you would call the electorate fools. Like, that's just not something you do. But... Alarn has seen, like, they're still in the, like, mindset of, like, we're going to be great heroes. The war is going to be over as soon as we join up. And Alarn has seen some stuff, and he is so over that view. And you can really see the, like, the book sympathizing with him. Like, he is the one who, like, like, maybe not in all ways, but, like, he has so much greater knowledge of this. What's interesting about that is he is also the one who advocates for killing the years. Yeah. Um, so there's a scene where they have taken over this taxon ship, transport ship, in order to get to the, the homeworld planet. And they discover that what the ship is transporting is jacuzzi tubs full of yerks, as we have seen in, in the past. And Alaran's approach to that is, great, let's open the hatch and dump awesome. them. Yeah. And Alfengor has a, a reaction to that. He just, it's, um, it's not honorable. It's not how we fight. Mm-hmm. And it's the same discussion we had in episode six in the capture when the an- yeah. Animorphs are faced with the same 
which interestingly, the Animorphs did not have that discussion. Right. There was no acknowledgement in the text that maybe he shouldn't have done that. It doesn't here, seem to bother Axe. Yeah, yeah, no, even though this seems to be an Andalite principle. But here we are like 10-ish, less than 10 books later, the books are acknowledging that this is a problem. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I wonder if it's like the authors hadn't contextualized it that way for six, or they just didn't want the animals to contextualize it like that yet. It's an interesting change. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I think, so we should talk about the role that it plays in the books. I also want to talk about what it says to me about how the Andalites work, because mm-hmm. it's so clear to me. Have, have you seen the movie Starship Troopers? So it just, it, the way that the Andalite propaganda has like totally brainwashed Elvingor <laughs> and Arbron. Makes, yeah. reminds me so much of that movie and just generally this idea that they're like oh yeah we're happy to we're gonna go off you know to war and kill these slugs and it's everything's gonna be great yeah there's this thing like what if the war's over by the time we get back i guess that would be good but <laughs> right and so just like they're kind of like happy to go off to this meat grinder and yeah. alaran's obviously seen things and understands the reality a little bit better but it's interesting to me that the propaganda means that Elfingor is like naive, but it's not quite to the point of like dehumanizing the Yerks entirely. So it's oh, it's interesting. interesting. It's yeah. interesting that the way five years into the war, it's clear that they're like uh, lying about how well the Andalites are doing to their own mm-hmm. people when they're mm-hmm. at the taxon base. They find out there's a lot more traffic than they would expect, and even Alrin is disturbed. So it's not like the the military leaders know and the people don't. It's like uh, the Andalite people are like reading in Andalite newspapers or watching Andalite TV and hearing, "Oh, it's so great! The Andalites are winning," but they're clearly not. Or the Yorks are doing a lot better. And maybe even the Andalites, the Andalite military leadership, believes that to some degree. They probably don't invade the tax on homeworld all that often. Right, yeah. and there are some other things that we learn, like the. Um, Taxon, there's a taxon resistance that gets briefly mentioned, mm. right? Which Elfinger was like, oh, if the Andalite homeworld knew. And part of me was kind of wondering, well, or it's just more convenient to say all taxons are like this, yeah, right? Yeah, it's easier then, to kill taxons if you don't think, oh, we could free the taxons. Right. Instead. And the way the Andalites kind of approach humans for the first time and talk about the Skritna, it's like very ethnocentric and like, we don't, you know, we're, we're superior to everyone else. And so there's yeah. this whole kind of like Andalite mindset that it seems almost a little bit strange that they have these ideas about honor. I'm not totally sure where they come from, given the way they think about everything else. Oh, interesting. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it, it kind of goes together. Like, if you if you believe that your species is the best, like, you kind of have to have some substance behind that. Like, you also think, I mean, this is my thing, like, Andalites really are Americans, right? Like, I think that there's sort of an American superiority idea where like it's not just that we're the strongest we also deserve to be the best like we will do good things for the world and I think that Andalites kind of have the same thing where like yes we would never do these terrible things our victories are all because of our superiority or something right but they don't have the like cultural myth of like we threw off the mantle of imperialism and like made our own destiny that's right? true there's that's like true. There's no, it's, it's, it's a very monolithic culture. Yeah. And that's the thing, I want to get into this too more, the way that one of the things that jumps out is Chapman is like, oh yeah, we have wars too. And they're like, you're only a level six civilization, which means you can't get into space. So who do you fight? As if war yeah. doesn't happen except in space. And so that the idea that humans get into conflict is like something weird. To me, that's almost like all of the alien species are like these monolithic cultures, or 
the Andalites are like that, and so they just assume that all Skritna are the same. I bet it's more like the Andalites have not always been peaceful, but now they've sort of been sold this story that they always have yeah. been. So I did also notice that Elfingor was really surprised to hear about the idea of PTSD, like the idea of, oh, oh, what is this? Sorry, yeah, that's another really it. good detail. Uh, I'd never heard of an Andalite warrior coming back from the war unable to cope, as Larn had put it. And I was like, does that not happen somehow? Or is it just that it's covered up? It's not No, recorded. I think it's all it's... this kind of propaganda thing. Yeah. And you, yeah, you, already, you yeah. already see when Axe, uh, he, he calls home, right? Yeah. And they're just immediately like, okay, well, here's a more convenient narrative. You're going to sign up to this. Yeah. We're going to blame you instead of Ilfangor, right? But I think part of, like, a central part of their narrative is the moral superiority. Like, they set laws, it seems like, for the get. Like, at some point they're like, the script, no, I have no regard for laws. And I was like, what are these laws? Like, are they, they're not referencing any, like, pan-galactic thing ever. Maybe something exists. But, like, it seems like maybe the Andalites set laws and expect other people to obey them. I don't know. Yeah, there's obviously some kind of intergalactic organization because there's there's a trading language and mm. commerce, so there must be not that yeah. not that that necessarily there doesn't have means, to be anything centralized, right? But, but there's there's clearly some engagement between these different civilizations. But yeah. I do think the idea of exceptionalism, whether American or Andalite, is something that does rely on a certain amount of propaganda. It seems likely to me that that's what's happening here, and that right. there's some honor in the propaganda, and that's what Elfingor has taken in. But also. It doesn't seem like the books are discrediting a lot of Elfingor's naivete, but it doesn't feel like they're discrediting this. Well, I think this is maybe going back to what you were saying about the how it plays in terms of what the book is trying to say. Because you get mm-hmm. the conversation about PTSD a little earlier on before Elfingor's had his first fight. Yeah. And it's very much this yeah. like, you can't have opinions about war if you haven't been through it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like soldiers kind of know what it's like, but... Other people don't. Civilians don't. Yeah. And Elfangor has these naive views about things, about how glorious it's going to be. But when he actually gets into a fight, even though he's like a badass, according to yeah. Arbrin, you know, he says, even Alrin was scared of you. Uh, and like, as if that's like a compliment. But yeah. Elfangor's feeling of going through it, in addition to a little bit of pride, is basically being totally overwhelmed by the carnage and the emotional cost of having killed a bunch of people. It's interesting that his moral dilemma about like, do we flush these yerks happens right after this battle. So like, it's sort of after he's lost a little bit of his innocence, like his naivete. Like mm. I think maybe oh, if that's it had really happened earlier, it would be like, I don't know, maybe his opinions would be a little more overblown or something. And like this, because he's just had this trauma of the fight feels a little more genuine. Like he's sort of seen through some of his, he hasn't really processed it yet, but yeah. he's still, I, even after that trauma, able to come out. I want to read what he goes through. Cause this was the like one passage that really stood out to me. But my insides were churning. Some awful feeling was eating into my thoughts. I felt stunned. I felt like I wasn't even me. It was like I was some totally different person, standing off to one side, just watching myself. And he runs back into into Lauren's arms. But then he also has this pride that is still there, which is, I felt like, even more disturbing. That he was also really proud of himself for having fought well, even though he was horrified at the thing that he did well at. Right. And I remember, um, maybe it was also book eight, when they talk about... Beast Elfangor, that was his like nickname among the Yurks, right? And so you can see he actually, like that reputation is deserved, (laughs) right? It's a crazy scene, and I I think there's there's some sense that I have of they're trying to make Elfangor, the authors are trying to make Elfangor more of a hero figure, and Mm -hmm. one of the ways in which they can do that is to give him this moral dilemma that seems slightly out of place for where, for his opinions, 
Interesting. I mean, I get that, that he's trying to say, you know, we have we have this honor, but also he's been so gung-ho to fight yeah. that it seems as seems to me that if you had a cadet who's been now in one battle and who certainly had a traumatic experience in that battle, but who mm-hmm. also is a little bit proud of how well he, he performed and who has been inculcated in this warrior society faced with a tub of enemy combatants that he would be the one saying pull the plug get them out flush them i don't agree though i feel like i mean this is what alan is saying about like the electorate wants a clean war i think that elfingor has been indoctrinated with the idea that they can have a clean war and so he doesn't want to do this yeah it's a good point i mean i guess part of it too is that there are an awful lot of casualties in this war if you're fighting not against the yerks but against the controllers. It's true. It's like one mm, of the few yeah. opportunities to just get rid of Yurks and not hurt the species right. they've infested. Because you're slaughtering hork by the dozen, a species that, until the Yurks yeah. came around, was completely innocent of any of this. Yeah. And... To say that it is somehow more honorable to slaughter the hork and even the yeah. taxons than it is to slaughter the Yerks. It is, yeah, it's like we don't want to kill them when they're not in battle, but they're only in battle when they're infesting another species, and then you have to also kill the other species. It's like a different scenario than the normal, like, well, we won't kill you while you're tied up, we'll give you a sword. Right. I did want to say on the um, this moral dilemma, the difference between this and six... So I was uh, I was debating this briefly with Jeremy Simon, who was our guest on Nine. He was saying that like because the Yerks are invading Earth, it's a little more like all of Earth is a battleground. Like they were there specifically to do you know to infest people, and also it's a little bit more like maybe they're spies. Like you do kill spies, you maybe don't kill them without a trial. But and this scenario is a little bit different, where they have invaded Yerk space, like space like. They're in the Taxon homeworld. The Yerks didn't, the Yerks, you know, made a deal with the Taxons. These Yerks are not currently actively invading Earth. Might be a slight difference. Yeah, it's a fair point. Um, I think in general, there's a lot of, there are a lot of pieces of this war that are very narratively convenient (laughs) and that I am finding fault with not because of the books, but because I'm coming to them fresh as an adult who has read an awful lot of fantasy and science fiction that is perhaps slightly more thought through in terms of world building and war building mm-hmm. than these books are for obvious reasons. But it's, it was things book a like, month. Yeah. yeah, I mean, when you have a book a month, you don't stop to think about the fact that you suddenly have these Andalite warriors whose real skill should be spying, but who are somehow at the front lines yeah. of the battle, as opposed to, for example, the hork Bajir being at the front lines of the battle and the Andalites being their spies on the Taxon homeworld. I mean, just, if you were really... I feel like we are actually going to find out some more about why that is not the case. I, I trust that. And, there, and we it did seems talk like about Andalites the, are doing both right now. And we do yeah. talk about the Hork-Bajir, you know, their homeworld fell and so on. But I thought of that in this book because Elfengor actually has a, a bit where he says, this morphing ability makes us really good spies. Yeah. It's like, you don't seem to be using it that way at <laughs> all. But it's a great well, point. Yeah, it was really interesting at the beginning. They referenced, like, yes, and this Andalite morphing technology allows us to spy. And I was like, oh, right, that's what they use it for in this war, of course. Because I had kind of had the thing about, like, they're fighting in space. What do they need yeah, to morph? But, like, do 
they use it that way because we've seen zero evidence of that in well, any of okay, the well, we They certainly don't train it. the Aris yeah. to do it, right? right. Elfanger talks about how a taxon is only the third thing that he's morphed. They, you, you have one practice morph, and then there's like one morph for fun, but he takes his code so seriously and morphing <laughs> for pleasure is frowned upon. Yeah. So he just, he never did it again. But I bet that there are different cadets who are specifically being trained to be spies. And we just don't see... Like, he references it. I don't think we need to see it because we aren't seeing a full picture of the Andalite homeworld. It's also obviously Andalites, like, love themselves. And (laughs) part of the Andalite superiority thing is about their bodies and their tails. tails. Right? And so it's, it's almost like, you know, this isn't, this isn't in the text really, but it, it would totally make sense that it's actually kind of lower status to be a spy. It's not just that you're sneaking around, but you're kind of, you're not really an Andalite when you're in like a Ged form to do infiltration or whatever. And so I can totally see that. I like that. Yeah, well, I mean, they have this this whole thing about the the other cadet with him, Arbron, is uh, very good at... Um, he's good at shooting. He's a decent enough warrior, but he's super good at computers. And he's very embarrassed by that because oh, to yeah. be good at computers is frowned upon, even though he figures out what's going on. Is it exodatology? Is that yeah. what they call it? Yeah. This is very Gondor, where like Faramir is like looked on as less of a warrior because he is also good at, good at the liberal arts. <laughs> yes, yeah. Faramir is good at computers. He's good at he's good the original at exodatologist. <laughs> He's the one who's making sure everyone gets fed, but he doesn't okay. have a big sword. So well, but he him. also has a big sword. It just seems like less because he has, you know, a diversity right. of skills. And this is a, this is another interesting thing that so maybe the Andalite, you know, what's going on in the Andalite homeworld world is a little more nuanced than I was assuming before. Because Alarin also has this thing about like kids these days are have to be trained to be artists and scientists as well as warriors. Like back in yeah. my day, it was good enough to just be a warrior. Blah blah blah. So it is kind of interesting. Even Alfangor has, you know, he he obviously wants to be a fighter the most, but he feels like he should be well-rounded. And his <laughs> the person who's training him at the beginning is like, you're always too much of an intellectual or something like that. Yeah, you think um, too much before you attack. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and there are, we learn, I, I have a list of things that we learn about the Andalites. Oh, yes, let's talk about that. Uh, but one of them is that they have, is the thing that you mentioned earlier, that there are mystics as well as warriors. Mm-hmm. That that's a, a category yeah, of person. Like a profession. Be, which I thought was really interesting. I was intrigued by the thing where they apparently have regulation of like how many children you can have at oh, like yeah. a level that would reduce the population. Like they're mm-hmm. trying to actively reduce their population. And now they're like, oh, there's a war. Maybe every couple can have two kids. Right. And but like. Andalites are really long lived or pretty long lived. We decided like maybe twice as long lived as humans. Okay. Like up to 200 years. Yeah. But, like, they probably need a lot of land because, like, they, they just run. Like, they're yeah. direct herbivores. And so maybe maybe it w- it's not overcrowded by our standards, but, like, it is by their standards. I don't know. It's interesting. That's a good point. Yeah, the, the having only a, a reduced number of children, they had to um, appeal to be allowed a second. Mm-hmm. Elvengor's parents had to in order to get the second Thanks. who will be axed. Yay. Thank goodness they did. Mm-hmm. It's very Ender's Game, also. It's very Ender's Game. That's exactly yeah. the comparison I was going to make. Classic. That they had to. They also had to. Apply. And the extra child ended up being really important to the world slash galaxy. Let's see how Axe does. I also I like Alfanger always thinks of him as Axemily because of course he does, <laughs> which is actually a very nice name. I like his full name a lot, but I always think of him as Axe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, things that we found out that I thought were very silly about Go the Andalites. 
is that for whatever reason, the computers that they're using on the bridge have tags for thought speech and spoken speech, which... Ha, wh- ha, why? What? You know, Who's talking? I think it's that, like, the computers are talking. So, like, the computers are giving you one stream of data through thought speech and a different stream of data out loud. We've never seen digital thought speech, right? No, but like, that see, I, like, I thought that was what was going on. I think you're right. I also found it interesting, the idea that you could have thought speech noise, like it just gets too psychically crowded or something, because it seems like at least the Animorphs are really good at targeting thought speech, and Andalites seem like they'd be even better at that, but they seem like a little more lax And there's about like, it. there's a lot of times when, like, or the one that jumps out to me is Elfangor is like, oh man, I seriously hope this works, and he thinks he's saying it to himself, but Arbron's like <laughs> nodding along next to him when they're yeah. going on their first mission. why are they so bad at this? Right. To be fair, that is a thing that shows up in fiction a lot, where it's like, I didn't realize I was saying it out loud until, and you're like, people always know when they're talking out loud, but okay. They also, besides the uh, sound speech info tags on the computers, weirdly, their main eyes are the ones on their face, which I was a little surprised by, because if you have stock eyes that can look in any direction, (laughs) I would expect As we've learned, their main eyes are the ones that they can use to express emotion, and the stock eyes are just creepy surveillance eyes that are always open and always kind of looking around like little security cameras. Yeah, that was sort of confirmed Which is still terrifying. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I closed my main eyes, leaving only my stock eyes open. I, th- I read that and was like, wait, could he have closed his stock eyes? And then I reread it and I was like, no, I'm pretty sure it's still the conclusion where the stock eyes don't close. Mm-hmm. They're just always around. Well, and the, the face eyes being the ones that um, show emotion makes sense in the context where I had tagged it, which was when they're fighting, it's the main eyes that show what they're going to do next, oh, not yeah. their stock eyes. Yep. So Although the stock eyes might sh- indicate something via like the way they move, like what they're pointing at. I was reminded this week of the thing where apparently Tolkien elves sleep with their eyes open. So now I'm also feeling like there's a connection there. All right, Tolkien. <laughs> uh, they also have translator chips. That's how they understand. Yep, yep. That's what other... I was thinking of when we were asking that question. Yeah, I know we had that question before. But I have a lot of questions. Because it also... Their thought speech, and I quote, works at a level beyond mere words. Yeah, we found that out. We were wondering. Almost all species can understand our thought speak. So this hasn't quite addressed all of the questions because, so first, when you morph, translator chip still works from Z-Space. Oh. Right, where your brain is. But that it doesn't kind of makes it sense. doesn't interface with so he couldn't make the taxon but, speak a different way. Exactly. Language. When he's in taxon morph, he can vocalize, but he doesn't know the language because he only gets the taxon's instincts, and his translator chip doesn't interface, whatever that means, with the taxon brain. So, However, Axe effortlessly speaks English when he becomes a human, (laughs) and he's not a good xenobiologist, so it's not like he learned English in the academy or anything, right? So that's so true. It's either morphing tech got better, or maybe... It's just that taxon brains are so weird. They're not just like ours, right? <laughs> Human brains interface with the translator chip and taxon brains don't. There are a lot of questions here. If a yerk goes in your brain and sticks with you, even in morph, then if you have a translator chip embedded in your brain, it should stick with you even in morph. Well, my thought was yeah. that True. why would they True. need their translator chip wouldn't like it would be receptive and not generative like they would understand but not be able to speak because they don't have mouths they could never speak it anyway oh but it sense. is possible that like by the time like 20 years later axe is getting his 
or like whenever he gets it, whenever he gets his translator chip, it's like a better form of the technology. I would I'll I would be willing I'll to give them it. that. Yeah, it's been a couple decades. It's important tech. There's a lot of quote unquote science in this as well. <laughs> I don't know a lot about physics, but I'm. They have zero space engines. And you probably know how powerful those are. And my note there is just <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Wait, we do um, we do get like a bit oh, of an man. explanation. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say we need to take the quotes off the science, but yeah. But Z space travel doesn't involve going fast. It involves tunneling through anti space, what we call zero space, and then back into the universe, normal universe at another point. Yep, it's a yeah. very good point because that is how time, uh, how space travel works in a lot of other sci-fi mm-hmm. where you punch through the kind of fabric of the universe yep. and you have to figure out where you're going to come out, all that. Yeah. Fine. Except then later, Wrinkle. they are, tesser. they tesser, whatever it is, but then they're traveling through conventional space. Mm-hmm. They, they came out, come out of zero space halfway between Earth and Mars mm-hmm. and they have to travel through conventional space. So they're not traveling in light years they're they're traveling in conventional speeds and yet we have to keep our speed down so as not to distort time too much well no that makes sense not if you're going less than light speed well i mean the point is that they have to stay way back from light speed like they could i guess go close to light speed but it would distort time all right but (laughs) when they're chasing the scritna fighter earlier they have the Model 14 ship that can accelerate <laughs> a lot. And yeah. they go, it's something like, we went to one-third the speed of light in 10 seconds. Oof. And when they talk about what these ships are built out of, they describe like the Andalite Dome as being made of plastic. <laughs> and I just, I also don't know that much about physics. I just can't <laughs> imagine their ship just not melting to pieces, making that acceleration. And it's, it's like extra good Andalite plastic. Yeah. Anyway, I'm skeptical about the science. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that seems pretty standard. Like, if we're, like, folding space-time, we aren't going to have the time distortion. But, like, if we just go really fast within normal space, we do risk the time distortion. I don't know. That's... I mean, fair enough. I guess, I, again, I I have been enjoying sci-fi space travel books that are all about which buttons you push and why <laughs> in order to get from the one place to the other space. But it was nice to get a little more about how all of the Andalite things work. Yeah, there are a bunch of questions that got answered. I think we've talked about most of them. I appreciate that you guys didn't spoil any of those things for me because (laughs) every time one of them came up, I was like, oh, I had that question. Yay! Yay. (laughs) It's very nice. Thank you. We get Elfinger saying at the beginning, he's like, I was too weak to fight, too weak to morph. And I was like, okay, but like, I feel like in the time since book one, we've thought of so many explanations for like why maybe he couldn't morph and now he's just like no i was just too weak i know I'm like, they oh, had come a, on they had a chance to resolve it because but... like we saw like i don't know marco's like morphing with his like guts falling out rachel doesn't have any arms like they can morph out of very severe injuries like and elfinger does in this book Mm-hmm. He's yeah. a taxon being torn to shreds by other taxons, and which is the worst thing ever. Yeah. And he still manages to morph out. Mm-hmm. So it does still seem like there must be something else going on. They clearly have not listened to our podcast. No. Where we have suggested other Why ways they like, get around use this. the time matrix, come to the future, and listen to our podcast so they would have these insights. What a great time for us to talk about the time matrix. <laughs> <laughs> it's always time to talk about the time matrix. The time matrix is all times. Could you imagine a MacGuffin more boring than the cube that they used to acquire the morphing power, which is a glowing blue cube? Because <laughs> Kay Applegate could. She invented a glowing white sphere. 
It's she's keeping it simple. It's classic. Time is is beautiful and elegant and simple. It's just a circle. This is so. This is so ridiculous on so many levels. Its name is very dumb. Its appearance is very dumb. I'm going to defend the name Time Matrix. I like it. I like it. Because you don't normally describe a like device or spaceship as like a matrix. It no, sounds like that. abstract and weird. It's cool. I like it. It's I'm fine. a fan. That's my. That was my complaint. Is that it's not a matrix. It's a sphere. That's a different thing. I'm pretty well, sure it, when like, they wrote the book, the matrix of time. It was called the time machine, and at some point they were like, "Oh God, we gotta find a place." Uh, matrix. <laughs> Uh, all right, so it's it's a long lost. Uh, it's like fifty. It hasn't been seen for fifty thousand years. Fifty thousand years. It's been buried in the sands of Egypt for fifty thousand years. It has been okay. buried deep in the ground in a desolate looking area of blowing sand, and a huge stone pyramid had been raised <laughs> over it, hidden for fifty thousand years, hidden on Earth. So, okay, I don't know that much about Transformers, but wasn't it a thing where like? Four billion years ago, they, like, landed on Earth and, like, were asleep under the pyramids or something until recently. Is that not a thing? I mean, there's also aliens under the pyramids in Indiana Jones. I mean, aliens built the pyramids is, like, a conspiracy <laughs> Although, theory. interestingly, this doesn't say aliens built them. It just says that a pyramid was raised over it. Maybe the but Egyptians were like, this thing is weird, time, let's build a pyramid. The time is off by an order of magnitude here. <laughs> That's 50, true. 50,000 versus like 4,000. That's true. So I, I was also thinking like maybe, so maybe there was just something weird and humans built it, it like, later. But, yeah. you know, but why would we, we, would, like, we would be able to tell unless the time matrix is messing with the carbon dating on the pyramid stuff. Like we would be able to tell if those things had been built 50,000 years instead true. of 4,000 years I look forward to Elfhammer identifying the carbon dating feature of the time matrix yeah. in a later part of the <laughs> It's a white sphere with a lot of buttons and one of them is alter carbon dating. I just, I rolled my eyes so hard that I gave myself a headache. Oh, no. <laughs> it's just, what? It, it doesn't make sense. But do you have any, like, do you think that, like, the time matrix will come into play? I already know it will because they're going to travel into the time of the dinosaurs. <laughs> this is the spoiler that I'm most excited about. So, obviously, they're going to find it and use it. Mm-hmm. I'm very intrigued to see how they deal with the ramifications in terms of time travel, which is something that we talked about uh, during The Stranger when mm-hmm. the Elemist shows them a possible future and we d- decided whether or not the future is deterministic. And now they have a time machine that will allow them to figure that out. And won't that be fun? But we did learn in this book, actually, they talk about whether about this being the most dangerous weapon imaginable because you could go back in time and change history to wipe you out in the present. Mm-hmm. This is the thing that you can hold against Chapman for himself. He couldn't have got this from anyone else. Someone someone <laughs> says to him, oh, a time machine exists. And his first, Lauren is like, why would that be bad? And Chapman's first thought is, oh, because I could kill you or I could wipe out the whole human race. Those are his wow. first two ideas about time he travel. He hasn't even seen Back to the Future yet. That didn't come out until 1985. Yeah. Like, he's just coming up with this himself. Yeah. He's, he's, he's bad. He's pretty bad. <laughs> Real bad. But very inventive in, in a dangerous way. Yeah. Well, okay, let's talk about that. The one thing that I loved rereading this, I hate Chapman so much, but I love the idea that humans got themselves into this mess. That, like, oh. some idiot human was like, uh, hey, come, come and get him. Come and get us. Right? It's like, it's so, it's it's perfect. It's perfect. Uh, it's a perfect way to complicate it. It's not like, in the same way that the Andalites, maybe they're not as noble as they seem. 
the humans are complicit <laughs> in their own in the same right. way. Yeah. It also does sort of explain why the Andalites are not fighting particularly hard to save Earth. <laughs> there are other battle fronts out there, and presumably those other battle fronts include more advanced species that have space travel that can get the Yerks mm-hmm. to more places. And then there's this sort of backwater, don't have space travel level six civilization. And like we they kind of brought it on themselves. They're right. not wasting warriors trying to help us. Yeah. I get that. We haven't talked about morphing in this book because it hasn't been as big a thing. Ted, did you have thoughts about morphing the taxon? Uh, morphing the taxon was, to be honest, a little underwhelming. Uh-huh. It was bad, but he describes it abstractly as bad. He's just like, I can't even describe how powerful the <laughs> hunger was. I wanted to eat my friends. That was bad. You know, the bit where then he, like, the feeding frenzy happens and he's barely able to pull himself away. That's pretty bad. The part that I couldn't, I couldn't deal with is when he's being torn to pieces by the other taxons. Mm, yeah. The thing that I learned for the first time in this book that I probably knew before but didn't remember is that the taxons, their legs are like, end in like needle points. Yeah, they're right? cones. Yeah, they're these conical legs that are, that are needles. And so, and he's also, I forget how big the taxons are. They are so big. He's like 10, 10 feet, feet long. long. So when he gets knocked out of the maglev train by Subvisor 7, he's like, all right, push him out. And a bunch of Hork-Bajir have to kind of like roll him out the side of the maglev. And he goes like tumbling like, over. I feel like they're like, you couldn't, you could maybe put your arms around like half of them. Yeah. What the, what the animals say is yeah. that you can't even hug. You can't not even hug a taxon. Not that you would want to. Not that you would want to. Yeah. Um, and then he's, he's just like torn to pieces. And the, mm-hmm. that, the description of the, ta- uh, like dozens of taxons sticking their needle legs into him as he's desperately trying to demorph is horrible. That's it's the really, worst thing. Really the bad. worst thing ever. This, the whole latter third of this book takes place at the taxon homeworld. And what that allows Applegate to do is to describe over and over again in slightly different ways <laughs> the taxons. Yeah. Great and unnecessary detail. <laughs> I did not realize the needle legs were horrible. But the fact that their mouth is at the very top of their head, so that oh. when they're eating, they bend all the way over and then eat with their mouths. Like, it was all oh, it was terrible. And they have, their jelly eyes are compound eyes yeah. made up of thousands of little eyes. Oh, it's so bad. So now I'm imagining, like, like fish roe. Like, yes, that's yeah. what I was just going to say. Yeah, like uh, fish That's even eyes. worse yeah. than jello. Yeah. Like the animorphs probably don't have We're a lot never of sushi, sushi in the 90s. again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, his warm body split open. They're ten foot long hose. They the smell alone is enough to make you sick. I mean, over and over again in different places, it is just terrible. Ugh. Oh, and their legs. They're, so they're tubular, like a monstrously thick 10-foot-long hose. They have rows of needle-sharp, cone-shaped legs. The upper third of their body is held upright, and their rows of legs become smaller and form tiny two- and three-fingered hands. They don't know what lobster claws are. <laughs> no. <laughs> True. <laughs> oh, and they don't have jello, so he doesn't describe it as jello, but oh, he right. describes it as some kind of like a gelatinous liquid or something mm. like that because they don't have jello, which I thought was funny. I th- there was some there was some interesting nuance, right? The taxon instincts are smart enough not to get themselves killed. The taxon can recognize the Andalite tail as a weapon, so he's not going to try and attack the Andalites. Mm-hmm. The maglev technology that we saw in the future on Earth seems to be from the taxon homeworld. Or the Yerks introduced it there. Maybe the Yerks introduced we it, but I could also imagine maybe taxons have built these maglevs for themselves. Maybe. I don't know. Their hunger seems so debilitating. It seems like they would have a really hard time getting anything done. But some of the taxons are part of this, like, mountain resistance, right? It's so true. I feel I... like we don't have enough... We still don't have enough evidence. Alfangor's experience is 
the hunger was so overpowering that it was an obvious trade. I would trade my freedom to be able to eat, right? But I think we don't necessarily know that that's the case. I mean, it seems like it has been the case for most of them, at least. But, like, that is an interesting... It raises a couple interesting questions. Like, like at what point is freedom worth less than the satisfaction of your needs? Like, there are all sorts of ways in which we sell our freedom away all the time. Like, we, you know, live in this society with all these laws, and we've traded freedom for safety in a lot of ways. And the Texans, like, what is it that makes them so hungry? Like, is there not enough food? Like, how did this evolutionarily, like, why is this? Yeah, we haven't gotten any more insight. I'm, yeah, I'm fascinated. It seems kind of like a barren, it's like a, like a red dirt, brown sky, rocky planet from the description. We don't get a Mm -hmm. lot more than that. So you think there isn't much food and so only the hungriest Texans survive? You think they just all eat each and other? Wasn't there some reference the to like the Texan seas back in oh, yeah, before, yeah, right? Yeah, Which yeah, we don't, yeah. we haven't seen yet. I did think it's interesting because in the fourth book we saw so they were the the seas of the taxon homeworld is what makes them so vulnerable. In the fourth book is when they get you get one punch from a dolphin nose yeah. and they explode like a paper yeah. bag. So gross. And this one we have something similar where uh, one of them falls from a height. And hits the ground like a bag of goo and his body splits open. And I, one of the things that their hunger reminded me a little bit of was actually sharks. Mm. So it's the sort of underwater Mm -hmm. thing, but any, the Mm. scent of blood, any injury, no matter what, how related that injured animal is to you, there's still that kind of feeding frenzy. That's a great parallel. And so I wonder if evolutionarily it's not necessarily that there isn't enough food, but that there is a sort of blood instinct that allows them to get rid of the weaker or injured animals, even of their own species. So the one thing that is against that as a theory is that as a taxon, he spends a lot of time talking about how he can feel the heartbeats of everybody around him. And he thinks all of them are like, oh, look, there's there's live meat around, which is not the same thing as someone has hit the ground. They mm-hmm. are you know, they're Dead injured meat. and yeah. they're ready for me to eat them. So my theory is perhaps not well thought through, but that was my yeah, thought. I like that. I had one last, like, gross morph thought, which was the line that I picked out. I was like, oh, yeah, Gray and Ted are going to hate this. I heard bones growing inside me. (laughs) Gray seems to already have written this down. I I have mostly because my... (laughs) I could hear my own internal organs dissolving, squishing, slippery sounds. I could hear other organs, organs I didn't even have a name for, take their place. And this whole section of him morphing into the taxon for the first time is he, he's got the the body is stretching out behind him and becoming a fat worm 10 feet of rippling slimy segments rolled backwards engulfing my tail the process made a sound like wet cloth being dragged over gravel that was <laughs> nicely described it was and then I there was the organ thing and my note was just oh come on <laughs> <laughs> I mean morphing a taxon like it has to be, has to oh, be gross. it was all so gross is there anything else we want to say about the first third before we have Gray predict the rest of it? Oh, that's going to be so good. It's going to be great. <clears throat> so one thing, one thing that I thought was really well presented in this first bit was um, we talked about the naivete of the Aris, how the older Andalite warriors are sort of really welcoming in their own way of like initiating them into like the world of being a soldier, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So they get called to the bridge and they're put on the spot. Yeah. And Elfangor, he kind of like, he's like, 
um, maybe we should do this. And they're like, no, is that a question or is that a suggestion? And like he, he's like, uh, 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 um, uh, we should do this. And then Arvin's like, oh, and we should also do this. Let's kill him. Let's put some tail into him. Yeah. And, and then, but then, and they're kind of like, they're making jokes and they're like, oh yeah, we were these, we were these dumb kids once, you know, and <laughs> also thinks he's you, they point right? out, we're just using you cause you're small. Like just get in there and do our dirty work. And this, you children. Yeah. Right. And similarly for all, Alaron is like really reserved and for the fact that Elfangor says like I think I've made an enemy by standing up to him at the end after that first battle Alarin is actually very kind in terms of saying hey yeah. you know like I, I understand it's always difficult it's always difficult your first battle doesn't get easier right so I thought it was really interesting how that that's just kind of and even the the sort of drill instructor in the beginning is he's kind of willing to like make a joke about it and and he's more I guess it seems like the older soldiers despite being portrayed as kind of like scary are actually on the side of Elfangor and Arbron oh, yeah. pretty unproblematically. I did want to mention we've talked so much about the theme of hope and this is and Elfangor calls it out again in the prologue. He said, I have no choice but to hope because it was I who created Visser Three, which is, you know but again we get that callback to mm-hmm. our running theme. We also learn more about the Yerk hierarchy. But do we? I feel like we learned what we already knew. We Well, we knew what we already guessed. And oh, we did not know okay. about the Council of... We had heard about the Council of Thirteen. Yeah. But... Uh, oh, we didn't know about the Secret Emperor. One You're of right. the Thirteen is the Emperor, but we don't know which one. It's a closely guarded secret. And then beneath them is the Vissers, the generals, numbered according to their power and importance. So Visser One would be the most powerful on down through Visser 40 or so. And then the sub Visser is like a colonel. Uh-huh. Not a visser yet, but a colonel. Yeah. So I was a little surprised that a sub visser could have a low number. I thought maybe you could be like sub visser oh. 52 and then you'd get to be visser 47. Oh, it seems like you get to mm. sub visser 1 and then you become visser like 47, 47 or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I had one. So my thought about the cover is that Elfengor's arms are too strong. <laughs> there are a couple things about how the Andalites don't use their arms. There's a little bit of yeah, how they Laura do like Yeah, Laura lifts hand herself signals. with her arms and they're like, what? <laughs> right. And when Chapman stands up, they're like, oh, human hands must be strong. And then there's there's a, even a bit when Chapman like grabs Elfinger's shoulder and he's like, no Andalite would ever grab another Andalite, right? Like they don't even really yeah. use their hands. There's no like physical affection or anything. Um, so I'm kind of imagining like little T-Rex arms more than <laughs> the arms that they have. I don't know. That's interesting. Like, do we think there's no physical affection at all? Like, I don't know. Though that reminds me, he talks about, so Elfinger and Axe come from a military family and we got to see mm-hmm. their father in book eight. And they go through that very yeah. formal ritual. Mm-hmm. And here he talks about how, like, oh, I, I, I sounded stiff like my father. Um, <laughs> get a little bit more of that oh, history. Yeah. Although his father was a warrior in a time of peace, which mm-hmm. means it was, mm-hmm. again, very different. we know that it was only five years that they've been fighting this battle. But A couple more little Andalite details. I love that Alaran's ship has grass floors. I just never yeah. thought about that before, but it's really delightful. And when they visit the solar system... They identify the nine planets surrounding our sun, <laughs> yeah. which means that they recognize oh, Pluto, which yes. is great. Okay, that means Pluto is officially valid. The Andalites recognize yeah. it. They set all the galactic laws. 90s references, Liam. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> That's about it for 90s references. Yeah, there was Otherwise, it's like 70s references. Yeah. Right. One more one more topic, which is, what did you think about the Skritna? We have to talk about them. I don't remember if they come back later, so we have to I talk about them now. I loved that these books are giving us an explanation for, like, alien abductions. Right. The Skritna have flying saucers with funny colored lights around them. Elfingar's Be- like, I guess they think that looks cool. Right. 
even though it's obviously impractical and dumb. And they're the Skrit. Nah, they're awesome aliens. They're the Skrit are like giant creepy bugs, uh-huh. and then they metamorphose into classic big-eyed, short gray aliens. Yeah, which are the Nah. <laughs> I like that. Arbron, Arbron, whoever we're saying him, is like what little green men? The Nah are gray. <laughs> right. And lights are all literal. It's not just X. I hope that at some point we see Alfengor using the word Twinkie to describe an alien, and then Lauren will be like, what? <laughs> it's like, isn't that your word? Oh I, I love, isn't Lauren's first line, like, freeze, horse boy? It's so good. <laughs> of course, he can't understand it because the uh, oh, translator, yeah, the translator chip, chip hasn't caught on, which that thing is fast. And the, How does, it must have, like, some thought speech so capacity. We, we talked a little bit about Andalite ethnocentrism, but... The way the Scrutin are presented are like, oh, they're just like these weird collectors and they don't care about anything. They're not our yeah. allies. And then the Scrutin is very reasonably being like, this human woman just took over my ship, dude. <laughs> and Elfinger was like, but if I didn't listen to him because Scrutin will lie to anyone about anything. <laughs> Smugglers and renegades. I really liked the line where Elfinger is talking to Lauren. He's like, I spoke like I would to a child. Obviously, the species was primitive. They didn't even have tails. <laughs> Constantly going to peaceful planets and kidnapping so, the local species. Do. <laughs> Sometimes doing medical Sometimes experiments. Sometimes they prefer medical One other thought. I feel like Subvisor 7 and Chapman are made for each other. Yeah. I think this is going yeah. to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And I think Ooh. it's so interesting that there's kind of this... Uh, Chapman tries to tempt Elfangor and can't do it. Right? He's like, do you want money? Okay, no. Do you want power? Okay, no. What about peace? We could bring peace. <laughs> Right, That's and it's it's almost like clever. if they had been a little more clever about leading him on, he probably would have been a pretty reliable ally, thinking he could get something out of it. Right, but yeah, he's that's just, true. But they're they he's don't got no respect for him at all. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So it's really interesting that kind of that blind spot there. Whereas he's going to be very simpatico with Subvisor Seven yeah. going forward. Speaking of going forward, so great. You, this is different. You've actually read the first third of the book, so what do you think is going to happen in the rest of it? Well, the next piece of the Andalites Chronicle is called Aloran's Choice. And my prediction for this is that Aloran is going to sacrifice himself to Subvisor 7 to allow Subvisor 7 to get an Andalite, uh, a mm-hmm. controller, and to, he will do that in order to save um, the two cadets. Alfinkor ah, and okay. All his right. buddy. And possibly also the humans. What do you think will happen with the Time Matrix? They're going to bring it back to Earth and put it back under the pyramids. Why? Because <laughs> okay. it was safe there for 50,000 years. Maybe it'll be safe there for another 50,000. Because the Skritna don't know what they have, and the Yerks don't know they have it. But didn't they want to use it? Oh, and actually, it's buried in the construction site somewhere. <laughs> or I think that it is. Because the reason that he's in the construction site for the first place is something about the time. I, I landed here in this construction site because I was looking for a great weapon, the Time Matrix. Mm. So I think it's in, it's in the mall. If your theory about Alrin <laughs> getting infested is correct, wouldn't Subvisor 7 know about the Time Matrix too? That's why they hid it in the mall. <laughs> <laughs> no one will ever look at a mall. What, right happens, to, what happens to Lauren and Elfinger? I mean, we have your your theory, but like... <laughs> I'm, I'm holding with that. I think they're going to fall in love and make beautiful human babies um, named Tobias. Just and, like five Tobiases. And the reason that it, the timing doesn't quite work out, because the it opens with him dying and and then goes to 21 years earlier. So there's mm-hmm. 21 years between when Alfangor and Lauren met and when 
and when Tobias, we meet Tobias as a 13-year-old. So mm-hmm. somewhere in there, we were missing eight years. But I figured it out while we were talking, and it's because they went a little too close to burn on the way back, oh. and so time went too quickly. Okay, okay. Oh. Eight years passed on Earth, then they had the kid, and it's Tobias. I'm sticking with this. Okay, until right. prove another one. But why did Elfinger go back into space? And maybe he didn't know. Or he'd only, he saw a picture. And you were to protect him. They had like one beautiful night together. A long distance secret. Okay. (laughs) Although he did say he had seen the the child before. So maybe, maybe Lauren was, you know, keeping him updated. Oh. But then. I bet the invalids have something. Do you have other theories about the child? Besides that it could be Tobias? No. (laughs) You're sticking with that? I'm pretty sure it's got to be one of the Animorphs. So I'm sticking with that. What if it's Tom? He was there. I don't like it. <laughs> Stigma twice. That's pretty usual. How does Chapman end up uh, a vice principal after <laughs> presumably getting his uh, reward for selling out Earth? Well, I assume he is also going to get sold out in his turn. And that our friend Visser 3, who at the moment is sub Visser 7, is going to take credit for his great idea. And Chapman is going to return in disgrace, only to take his pain and anger out on the next generation. <laughs> that's amazing. That's the that's the like fanfic I want to read now. <laughs> like disgraced Chapman having to live another twenty years <laughs> before the invasion happens, just being a uh, vice principal with all of the knowledge of space. That's amazing. No wonder he's so grumpy all the time. <laughs> I would be. Too. All right. Well, we'll see you next time. Not probably the next episode will actually, that will air, but the next Andalite Chronicles The episode. next Andalite Chronicles. If you want to find us, we are at Animorphology.com and at Animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the books on our website. Are we, doing, wait, are we doing a plot summary of this? Oh, yeah, well, we should. It's Do we your need to... turn. Oh, God. <laughs>